And now hear God's holy word from Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who is born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we are in awe of your majesty. We delight to uh, explore and work to understand the depth of your riches, of your mercies, and of the way that you exist and work as a communion of persons, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So draw us into the fellowship of the Trinity today as we rejoice in and explore these wonderful truths. We ask for your Spirit to guide us into truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you a big picture person or are you a detail-oriented person? Let me explain what I am, and I'll do it by way of a story. A long time ago, I supported my family by doing business-to-business -business sales for an office equipment dealership. We sold anything that put print on paper, and I made my living by approaching institutions, by May, taking the initiative and going to institutions that did a lot of printing, so schools and churches and print shops, um, hospitals, any place that put a lot of stuff on paper, and I would, I would introduce myself, and my goal was to aim for the largest section of business that I could find and offer one or two tangible benefits to meet them needs and save them money. Now, if you've ever been in sales and if you've ever succeeded in sales, it's likely because you are a big picture person. You know how to simplify. You know how to not get lost in the weeds of details. You know how to identify majors and minors and know which one to focus on. I identify as a big picture person. I'm a bottom line person. If I ask you the time, I don't need the history of watchmaking. I just need to know the time. So I went into sales with a simple motto, keep it simple. I would walk into some place and get involved with a decision maker and say, you are doing this much for this much money. I'm gonna help you do this much for this much money. Can I bring the contract by before lunch or after lunch? What works best for you? That's how I worked. At one point, there was an executive in our company who believed that the sales department and the service department weren't getting along and that should, they should improve their relationship to each other. And so this executive had this brilliant idea of sending service techs on ride-alongs with, uh, with salesmen so that they could see what we do. This, this idea never developed past that because if salesmen rode along with service techs, nothing would get sold. So they sent techs along with salesmen. Now, I don't know if you know technicians, technicians are not big picture people. They are detail-oriented people, and which is why they're good at what they do, right? We want detail-oriented people working on things. We don't want somebody to slam the hood of our car and say, that'd eh, probably work, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it looks like a car, it's fine. Um, you, you want 
uh, technicians to be detail-oriented when they have their elbows deep in fixing something. Now, I, I had one of these texts along with me on a day that I had a pretty big appointment with a school superintendent who served a very large district, and we were working out a pretty big deal. So I briefed the tech on the way, and I said, if he asks you any questions... Keep it short and keep it simple and keep it to the point. We got into the meeting and things are going pretty well. We're just sailing and the tech is not saying a word, which makes me really happy. And he's not saying anything until the superintendent asks, will this new equipment use more electricity than the old equipment? And the tech's eyes got about that big around and you could tell that he was ready to talk. His eyes widen and he launches into this stream of techno babble. Your old machines have a base plate of pre-famulated amulite surrounded by multilateral logarithmic casing in such a way the two spurving bearings are... And he, he gets into this, this detailed stuff and I could see the superintendent's eyes glaze over and I saw my sail sprout wings and just fly off the desk, out the door and go live with the birds because he is putting my client, my prospect to sleep. So the next time the text take, takes a breath, I jump right in and say, I would be very surprised if the new equipment used more electricity than the old equipment. Uh, you know, new technology is more efficient all the time. Now, uh, were you wanting the smaller units for the, uh, the teacher's break room or did you need those in the main office? Switch, get right back to the big picture as soon as possible. Now, I went into all of that to say, even though my job has changed, I am still committed to the big picture. That's just how I'm oriented, especially when dealing with complicated, detailed texts like Revelation, which we've been studying together. My goal is always to connect those details, not to ignore the details, but to connect them to our lives. Why it pleases God for us to know these things. What God expects us to do with this information. I never want to carry you out in the weeds and leave you there. Uh, first, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. All scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is given that you may be complete and thoroughly equipped. No part of scripture is just detail for detail's sake. And my job is not to simply inform you, but to equip you. But there are certain things which we must grasp, which require extra precision and attention to detail. And one of those, if there is any doctrine that needs a lot of attention to detail, it's the doctrine of the Trinity. We must all be, even big picture people, must be detail-oriented when it comes to this doctrine. You know how I love the doctrine of the Trinity, how I love to explore it, how it sends my imagination and my heart soaring. But I want to be sure that as we have the big picture, we don't assume that the details don't matter. Nor should any of us assume that the Trinity is too complicated to figure out. Don't assume that the Trinity is so difficult that it's not worth trying to understand it. When we define God as one divine substance, essence, and nature, who is three equally divine persons, that's not technobabble. That's not theological jargon. And when you hear me talk this way, don't think that you can just uh, allow your eyes to glaze over and, and flip the switch off in your brain. 
Because using precise terminology about God and possessing a certain mastery over some concepts leads us to embrace the truth of who God is. And it enables us to speak with clarity and confidence, which is what we need. So I, I, I love the Trinity and I love exploring the truth of the Trinity not because I'm a theology nerd who loves big theology words, but because I love God and I love who he is. And I want to know him as he has revealed himself to us. If you get the knowledge of God wrong, you get everything wrong. And so I appreciate Trinity Sunday on the church calendar because we get to stop one day a year, at least one day a year, and reflect on the relationship between the persons of the Godhead and to remind ourselves of why this is so important and why the details do matter, why it is important to get this right. It affords us all an opportunity to learn how to be a little detail-oriented. So here's my job today is to explain the doctrine of the Trinity in precise terms then to say a few things about what we're not saying, and then I'll widen back out to the big picture and say why this matters. What does it mean that we serve and worship and are saved by a triune God? So that's my job today, and that's what I will try to do for you. What is the doctrine of the Trinity? Number one, it is this. The doctrine of the Trinity is that there is only one living and true God infinite in being and perfection, who works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and most righteous will. He does these things for his own glory, and he exists eternally in a community of persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God is one in essence and in nature. So you get statements like Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. God is unified in purpose. There are not different purposes in God. There is one purpose and one God, but he is inseparably and without confusion distinguished as three persons who are consubstantial, co-equal, and co-eternal. I'm going to explain what I mean by each one of those. Consubstantial, co-equal, and co-eternal. Consubstantial means that the persons of the Trinity are of the same substance. They share in the same life. They are the same deity. There is not one member of the Trinity who contains more of the attributes of God than any other. They're, they're of the same substance, consubstantial. Co-equal means that all the authority and all the power and all the glory of God is possessed by each of the persons. All of the glory and power of God rests in the Holy Spirit. All the power and glory of God and authority of God rests in the Son and in the Father. They are co-equal. And then they are co-eternal. That means they've always existed. Each of the three persons of the Godhead have always existed. One did not precede the others. Jesus does not show up for the first time at the incarnation. The Holy Spirit doesn't show up for the first time on the day of Pentecost. All three persons of the Godhead are co-eternal. The Son is eternally the Son. The Father is eternally the Father. The Spirit is eternally the Spirit. They are consubstantial, co-equal, and co-eternal. 
Each person of the Trinity functions separately within the Godhead. The Father sends the Son, who is eternally begotten of the Father. In many places, Jesus is called the only begotten Son, as as we uh, heard in our, our gospel reading this morning. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. In John 15, Jesus says, when the Helper comes, who I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The Father and the Son together send the Spirit. They have specific duties and relationships toward each other. The Father sends the Son. The Father and the Son together send the Spirit. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Now, the Father is God. That's not a hard one to figure out or understand. The Father is God. Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father who is in heaven. In Galatians 1.1, Paul refers to God the Father. So the Father is God, and there are many, many texts we could look at to show that, that the Father is God. But the Son, Jesus Christ, is also God. In John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, we're talking about the Word of God, the Word of God incarnate. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we keep reading John chapter 1, and we find out the Word is Jesus. The Word is with God, the Word is God. Jesus is God. In Hebrews 1.6, there's this interesting statement that when he brings the firstborn into the world, when the Father brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So the Father sends his Son, and the angels whose duty is to worship God, those angels are directed by God to worship God the Son. Jesus is God who deserves all worship and honor and glory and praise. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. There's so many examples and places we could go to for this, but I'm only going to give you a couple. When Peter confronts Ananias, remember after Ananias promised that he was going to uh, give the proceeds from a land sale to the church, Peter says to Ananias, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And the very next verse, he says, because you have lied to God, Peter equates the Holy Spirit with God and uses them interchangeably. In, in Ephesians 4, 30, we read, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit is the Spirit of God. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. However, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Holy Spirit is neither the Son or the Father. The three persons of the Trinity remain distinct. And these three persons of the Trinity are not masks that God wears to reveal himself in different ways in different times in history. And I've actually heard this preached before many years ago, but I've heard somebody say, well, in the old covenant, God revealed himself as Yahweh. And then in the gospels, he revealed himself as the son. And then, and then in Acts, he reveals himself as the Holy Spirit, as if these are different hats God is wearing depending on the time in history or the various relationship that he is in. No, they are not three different ways of describing one God in various capacities. The scriptures attest to the coexistence of each member of the Trinity as they work together in concert. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always working together. And this starts from the first page of the Bible. 
This starts in, uh, uh, in, in Genesis. From the beginning of creation, God speaks of himself as a plurality of persons. He says, let us make man in our image. And throughout the work of creation, we find the whole Godhead working together to bring the cosmos into being and to bring man into existence. God, God speaks the heavens and the earth into existence. In John 1, we find out the word of God is the son of God. In Colossians 1, um, we, we find out that, that he is the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth. Over in Colossians and in the New Testament, we find out that Jesus is an agent of creation, but the Holy Spirit is also brooding over the face of the waters. And when uh, Yahweh creates Adam, he breathes into him his spirit of life. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working together in creation. And this goes forward through history. And uh, at the time of the Tower of Babel, God says, let us go down and confuse their language. Um, so the, the members of the Trinity are working together they work together to bring out the first creation, and they work in concert to bring a new creation in the redemption of man. In 2 Corinthians 5, if any man is in Christ, there is a new creation. The redemption of man is a new creation. So just as the first creation involved Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so we would expect that the new creation also involves the whole Trinity, the whole work of the Trinity. And the work of the Trinity is at the heart of the gospel. And I read Romans chapter one just a few minutes ago, and I read this for a purpose because you, you almost can't speak of the work of God in salvation without defining what the Father has done, what the Son has done, and what the Spirit continues to do. And this is how Paul opens the book of Romans. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, this gospel I'm delivering to you is the gospel of God the Father concerning his son Jesus, who has been raised by the Spirit. And he continues, he says, through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. It's through the ministry of the Father and the ministry of the Son and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that you have received grace and that you are enabled to obey, and that you are enabled to be faithful, that you are the called of Jesus. The work of redemption, your salvation, the fact that you are a new creation has involved the work of the entire Trinity in concert together. And you have been invited into the life of God. You have received favor because the Spirit who resurrected the Son, has joined you to the Son of God, who is favored by the Father. Now, you are wrapped up into these inter-Trinitarian works of grace and exchanges of glory in your salvation. I would just like to stop and think about that for about 20 minutes, but we don't have time. But how glorious and how wonderful and how amazing this is. 
In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul shows us. Just read Ephesians 1 and you see the work of the whole Trinity in salvation. The Father chooses us in Christ. Jesus redeems us with his blood. And the Holy Spirit is the seal of our redemption. The whole Trinity is at work to secure our eternal life, just as the whole Trinity is at work on the day of the baptism of Jesus. Matthew shows us all the persons of the Godhead in the same place at the same time. Jesus is at the water. The Spirit lights over him as a dove, and the voice of the Father speaks from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This also is a new creation that God is starting with his Son and the beginning of the ministry of his Son. And there's so many other places in the scriptures where the Trinity is referred to. When we hear the angels proclaiming the glory of the thrice holy God, as I read in Isaiah 6, it happens again over in Revelation where the angels say, holy, 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 the Father is holy, the Son is holy, the Holy Spirit is holy. Jesus commissions his church to go baptize and to take up permission in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul blesses the church using the Trinitarian formula at the end of 2 Corinthians. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We're commanded to address our prayers to the Father in the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. So you, you can't understand the work of creation and you can't comprehend or even begin to comprehend the work of redemption apart from an understanding of the Trinity. So I hope that you see here that the doctrine of the Trinity is not some peripheral bit of Bible trivia that the scriptures never address and the scriptures never really make a big deal out of it. And, and it's, it's not something that we should really make a, make a big deal out of when it comes to working with, you know, Unitarians or Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever. I mean, we're just all kind of worshiping the same God and, 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 and leave that to the seminary professors and leave it to the theology nerds to figure out. No, the God of the Bible is a triune God, and it's only through love, honor, worship, adoration, fellowship in the life of the Trinity that we have life. We have no life apart from the triune God. If you do not acknowledge the triune God, you do not know the God of creation. You do not know the God who sent Jesus. You do not share in the life of the Spirit. I'm not being divisive, and I'm not being overly scrupulous when I say that. This is what Jesus says in John 14. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but my father's who sent me. Jesus said, if you do what I say and you really love me, we will come and make our home with you. If you don't do what I say, you don't have any part of the life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Orthodox Christian confession is that God is a Trinity. And that's been a confession from the earliest days of the church. One of the oldest hymns of the church is the Gloria Patri. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen and amen. That's, that's, a, that's a formulation of the Trinitarian confession that we sing every Lord's Day. Now, as, as much as we declare about what we do believe about who God is, we have to be precise about what we're not saying also. We're not saying that there are three gods. 
That's a heresy known as tritheism. We do not worship three gods. The belief in many gods is known as pantheism. We're not worshiping multiple gods. We're not worshiping three different gods, but God, the one God, is made up of a community of three persons who share in one Godhead. Secondly, we do not profess that the three persons of the Trinity are three forms of God. I already just lightly skimmed across this, but we do not profess that the, the members of the persons of the Trinity are three different faces of God or three roles of God. That's another ancient hist- uh, heresy called modalism. And anytime somebody reaches for a simple illustration of the Trinity, they usually end up talking about modalism. That's what usually happens. You've heard before, well, you see, HTO, H2O can be ice, it can be liquid water, or it can be steam. And that's kind of like the Trinity, right? Those are three different states of, of one thing. But Father, Son, and Spirit are not three different states of one God. Water molecules cannot be both ice and steam at the same time. But the Father and the Son and the Spirit do coexist. Another way of explaining this is, well, you know, I'm a father and I'm a son and I'm a husband. Yeah, that's true, but you're not a trinity. Myself as father doesn't speak to myself as son, not even when I'm by myself in the car. I don't do that. And I don't have a conversation between my father self and my husband self. If I start doing that, uh, calm me down and, and speak peacefully to me and ask me if I'm okay, because we don't do that. So the persons of the Trinity are not different hats that God wears. He exists eternally in these three persons. So we reject modalism. Thirdly, we don't profess, profess that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three parts of God or three pieces of God. That would imply that Jesus is one-third God, the Holy Spirit is one-third God, and the Father is one-third God. And there are some other simplistic illustrations that say, well, you know, the Trinity is like an egg. You have the shell, you've got the white, and you've got the yolk. Or maybe the Trinity is like an apple. You've got the skin, you've got the flesh, and you've got the seed. Well, what is the problem with that? Well, the problem is is that the shell is not the egg. The yolk is not the egg. The skin of the apple is not the apple. But the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. Uh, The Son is truly and fully God, very God of very God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. And so we don't uh, profess partialism, that that we separate God into three-thirds. Those are some of the most popular failed attempts to explain the Trinity. None of them are really helpful to communicate truth, and they're all bad, and and I'm sure there are other bad examples that you've heard. But let's go on to how the doctrine of the Trinity shapes our life and our faith. One obvious truth of the Trinity. One obvious application is that because God exists eternally in a community of persons, we are created in his image to live in community. It's not good for man to be alone. God is not alone. We serve a God who has never once in all of eternity been alone. Hell is isolation and isolation is hell. Loneliness is pure torture. We are created to love and we are created to be loved and to live within relationships that reflect the life of the Trinity. This is why sin is so tragic because sin breaks fellowship. Sin puts us outside of communion. Sin puts us outside of friendship. 
It puts us out of communion with each other and with God. And that's why it's so important to be restored to fellowship. That's why when we get together and worship, the first thing we do after we, after we uh, are drawn into worship is that we fall on our knees because we need to be brought back into full, sweet communion and fellowship with the life of the Trinity. Uh, sin destroys that and therefore it must be restored. And so because God is a community, we are created to live in community, which means that we have to seek and, and to initiate friendships and, and to live in community and reject the pull of isolation. Building on that, the triune God exalts the other members of the Trinity each, each member of the Trinity exalting the other, and by his acts within the Trinity, defines love. And he, he demonstrates the act of giving. A, a Unitarian God, a solitary, lonely monad, would delight to absorb praise and worship from his human subjects. And this is, this is a bad assumption that a lot of atheists get wrong about God. When you ask an atheist, what is your problem with God? And they start to describe him. They start to describe this being who exists to manipulate his subjects and to absorb all kinds of prayer and praise. And when you hear someone describe that, say, oh no, I don't believe in that God either. I'm with you. That's terrible. That's awful. Because <laughs> everyone thinks in terms of a Unitarian solitary God who seeks his own glory only. Well, what would that Unitarian God be like? Well, he'd be like the way that Muslims describe Allah. Allah doesn't sacrifice for his people. Allah is not a trinity. Allah doesn't pour himself out for anyone else. Allah is a manipulator. You never know where you stand with Allah. I read an interview with a Muslim cleric uh, where the interviewer asked him, he says, how will you be sure that you will be welcomed in paradise? And the cleric said, I can't be sure that I'll be welcomed in paradise. Even if I have one foot in the door of paradise, Allah might still toss me out. This is a Muslim cleric who's lived his life pursuing the worship of Allah. Well, that's what we would expect of a solitary Unitarian God. He is conceited, he is egotistical, he is vain, and since you become like what you worship, his followers become egotistical and vain and arrogant as well. But that's not the triune God. We reject that because that's not who God is. So Paul writes in Philippians, he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Is Paul telling us to do something that God doesn't do when he says that? When, when Paul says, don't be driven by selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, esteem others better than yourself. Is Paul telling us that's good for you, but that's not good for God? No. Paul can say, act like this because this is how God acts toward God. So to esteem others better than yourself is to be godly because this is how God acts. This is how the Son treats the Father. This is how the Spirit treats the Son. God the Father isn't after his own fame and glory. The Father is zealous for the glory of the Son. And each of the members of the Trinity esteems and glorifies the other. Nothing God does is through selfish ambition, arrogance, or conceit. So to be like God is not to be vain or egotistical 
or tyrannical or conceited. And this brings me to the last point I'd like to spend just a few more minutes on. The truth that God is a community of persons opens up and clarifies for us what our responsibilities are to him, how we are to obey and worship him. And this defines for us obedience and submission. When we see the persons of the Trinity interacting with each other, mostly in the gospel and so clearly in the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where Jesus talks about the glory that he had with the Father before the world was, how he says, you are in me and I'm in you and the Spirit is in my people and my people are in me and my people are in you and the Spirit's in them, you, you lose arrows when you try to chart that, if you try to draw what's going on there, these exchanges of love and glory. When we see the persons of the Trinity interacting, God speaks to God. God hears God. God commands God. God obeys God. God gives to God. God receives from God. God denies himself for God. God sacrifices for God. God receives the sacrifice from God. What are these activities between the members of the Trinity, but the very same acts and duties God requires from us in the covenant God has made with us? God tells us to do the same things that he has already been doing from eternity. God says, hear me. God says, obey me. God gives and he says, receive this. He sends and he says, go. God says, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. God says, deny yourself and glorify me. These are all ways that God relates to God. These are all the ways that God the Son relates to the Father and the Spirit to the Father and the Son. This is the life of the Trinity. God does not require anything from us that God has not received from and God does not require from God. I'm going to say that again. God does not require anything of us that he does not expect from and receive from God and has received from eternity. The triune God is the God who loves, obeys, worships, and submits to God. Now, what does that understanding do to our definitions of obedience and submission? See, in fallen human relationships, we're liable to think of obedience as a response to raw power. We are forced to obey someone who is bigger than us or more dangerous than us. So if a king or a boss has more power than us, then we have to obey. And if we obey, we might get something for it. Money, success, power. Maybe we'll just avoid punishment. Maybe that's what we'll get out of it. But is that the only way to understand obedience? That the smaller and the weaker must submit to the one who is bigger. We, we might tend to think that since God has the power, therefore we must submit and obey because he's bigger than us and he's more powerful than us. But is obedience and submission only the response of a lesser being to a more powerful being? Is that the definition of obedience? Well, if that's your understanding, then, uh, and you push that understanding back into the Trinity, you have just created a horrible heresy. You've just created a monster. The son does not obey the father because the father is more powerful than the son or because the son is trying to earn something that the father gives him to avoid punishment. 
The Son does not submit to the Father, nor the Spirit to the Son, because the Father has greater value. The Father, Son, and Spirit are co-equal in power and glory and worth. So what's going on? In the incarnation of God, the Son reveals the true nature of God. Jesus is God who is an obedient servant. Jesus is God who obeys unto the death by pouring himself out for us in obedience to the Father, in obedience to God. The incarnation reveals that God is obedient to God purely out of love. The Son is acting in response to the love of the Father. And because as the Son, that is his role. As Son, that is his function in the Godhead to obey. And the Father, in response to the incomprehensible acts of service and obedience of the Son, the Father lavishes on the Son all glory and praise, and he crowns him with majesty, not because he has earned it or because he's merited the favor of the Father. How could he do that? Jesus prays that we delight in the glory that we had before the world began. How can Jesus merit the love of the Father any more than he's ever had? How can he earn anything from the Father? It's not because Jesus has merited the favor of the Father, but because that's what the Father does for the Son. The Father lavishes the Son with riches and honor and glory and praise. He gives the Son the nations. The Son obeys because he is the Son. The Father gifts because he is the Father. So the Trinity redefines power and glory, and it redefines obedience and submission for us. And especially as we look at how the Lord Jesus rules, <laughs> ruling, uh, when it comes to the Lord Jesus, ruling is not what fallen tyrants and oppressors define it as for us, uh, you know, pushing people around and micromanaging lives. How does rule come? Well, how does Jesus show us what, what rule is? Ruling comes through pouring out yourself in such a way that the objects of your love flourish and abound. You see, apart from the Trinity, we get obedience and submission all wrong. We can't understand obedience and submission apart from the Trinity. Wives don't submit to their husbands because women are worth less than their husbands. Women don't submit to their husbands because men are stronger. That's not what's going on. The bride submits herself to her husband because that is her calling. And that is also how she is elevated, how she is cherished, how she is made fruitful. And as the husband pours out himself, as he uses his body to work for her and to sacrifice for her, he crowns her with glory because that is his role. And to require your children to obey you is not to turn them into slaves, but for them to be truly sons, like the capital S son who obeys. We want our children to obey like the son, because sons obey. That's what they do. I, I know I'm running out of time, but I just want to glance real quickly at Romans 8. Listen to how Paul covers this in just a few verses in Romans 8 verse 12. Therefore, brethren... We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. If we had another 20 minutes, we could unpack how we get wrapped up into the life of the Trinity, the love of the Trinity, as we are heirs of our brother Christ, uh, we're heirs with Christ, we're heirs with Christ, our spirits are led by the Spirit of God, we're sons of God, and he uses that word sons of God deliberately. He deliberately uses the masculine term sons. Later on, he uses the more generic and general term children, but at first he uses the masculine term sons, and that includes all of us. Men have to get used to thinking ourselves as being part of the bride of Christ. We have to get used to that. And women have to get used to be calling sons of God. You, you need to understand how you are a son of God. But the point is that we become sons of God who are like the son through obedience. We share in the enthronement and the exaltation of the Son. We are granted the favor of the Son, and our lives are pleasing to the Father because the Son is pleasing to the Father. So we are swept up into this communion and exchanges of glory in the Trinity. We are included in this great swirling dance between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this choreography of mutual possession, mutual indwelling, mutual glorification, this dance that has been going on on for eternity as the son grabs his partner, the bride, and brings her into the dance. We are brought into this dance, not because we deserve it, not because we have earned it, but because the father has set his love on us. That's it. Because the father has set his love on us and because the son has died for us out of love and because he reigns over us as king out of love and the Spirit fills us, and the Spirit regenerates us, and the Spirit guides us into truth, and the Spirit groans with our prayers, and the Spirit directs our worship, and through the work of the whole Trinity in concert together, we are loved and filled with and incorporated into the community of the Godhead. Why? Because of love. Evacuate all merit, all thoughts of earning anything only for love. Don't ever think of God as this prideful, petty, distant old man in the sky. Don't ever think of God as this cosmic narcissist. Don't ever think of God as this generic Unitarian figure, kind of cold and disinterested. But he, but he has this son who's a little cooler, you know, his son's a little hipper, and he just tells everybody to love each other. And if we want to get in good with this distant God, then we need to know his son no, none of that is the God of the Bible. None of that is true. The God of the Bible is a loving, gracious community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has taken the initiative to draw near to us, helpless sinners, who has revealed himself to us and who has scooped us up and brought us into his community through his bride and body, the church. And we respond to his gracious acts toward us with worship and obedience, not for merit, 
not because of some power dynamics, but because we are sons and that's what sons do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have revealed these things to us and so cause us to delight in them and understand them more and more as we learn obedience, as we learn obedience through suffering as your son did. And so train us up, we pray. Disciple us and discipline us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.